0: Nehemiah chapter 13 a lot of verses so we're gonna roll into this but before we do because we don't have music let's pause for a moment prepare our hearts to be able to listen to the word so if you would look on the screen here join me in praying for some of these different items dear Lord we want to hear from your word this morning so we come before you asking that your spirit would help us to understand the words that the Spirit has inspired that reveal truths to us about you Lord, help us to apply those truths to our lives in such a way that we benefit from the word, grow closer to you through it, that our affections are reset on you because of the word that we hear and that we read and that we study this morning. Lord, today as we talk about spiritual carelessness and we talk about something that all of us struggle with, Lord, we confess to you that there are many times in our lives that we are careless spiritually. Lord, we sense our flesh, we sense that old sin nature, we, we sense that we are drawn away from you, that, Lord, our, our natural inclination is not to have our affections on you or to run towards you. So, Lord, we pray that you give us wisdom to stay in your word, to listen to your spirit, to pray, and to surround ourselves with believers so that we can continue to walk in this journey of following you. Lord, through your power in our lives, would you reset our affections so that we might desire to love you more and serve you out of that love? May it never be a legalistic sense of obligation or a perspective where we think we can earn our salvation, but Lord, may we love you so much that the desire of our heart is to please you and the actions that come forth from that desire is glorifying to you. Lord, would you help us today to take hope in the gospel, to be joyful over the grace you have given us. And Lord, would you would you help us to share that hope and that joy with others? And now as we look at your word, would you inspire our hearts and minds to believe it, to have faith in it, and to follow it? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, I wanna start off our message this morning with an illustration. I use this illustration in different formats. You may have heard it before, but today we're gonna to see a stark contrast between the difference of a thermostat and a thermometer. You think about a thermostat and a thermometer. Both of them will tell you a temperature. A thermostat sits on the wall, you turn the temperature to what you want it to be, and the thermostat will then seek to control the temperature in the room around it. A thermometer, it also tells you a temperature, But a thermometer takes the temperature and adapts to the temperature of whatever mouth it's in or of whatever degrees it's trying to take. So a thermometer changes quickly and changes over time. But that thermostat doesn't change. That thermostat is set to a dial and it seeks to change everything around it to that particular point. It does it slowly. It doesn't do it too quickly. It does it over time, and sometimes it takes it time to adjust, and then as the temperature around changes, whether it grows hot or whether it grows cold, that thermostat will kick in the right response so that it can maintain the proper temperature. As we look at our text today, we're going to see Elisha. We're going to see that as Nehemiah left and went back to serve Artaxerxes for some unknown period of time, that things changed. Things changed in Jerusalem. Things went back to the way they were. We see a thermometer in leadership in that particular point drifting to the common denominator, drifting to the popular opinion of the day. What we see with Nehemiah is we see a person who is set to be a thermostat, focusing on the word of God, focusing on this as the true north, as the right temperature, and seeking to change everything towards this as quickly or as slowly as may need to be as you look through the book of Nehemiah. So we come to the main idea of our text in Nehemiah chapter 13, and here's what I have selected for us today. Spiritual carelessness leads to evil actions. Now, evil is a strong word, but that word evil shows up in our text in chapter 13 three different times today. So I think it's the right word. I think spiritually when we grow casual or have a carelessness about what we're doing, it can result in evil actions. Now, sometimes we don't wanna think about our actions as evil, we just want to think about them as though, oh, I messed up, oh, I made a mistake, oh, I slipped here. But those actions that go against God and his word, Nehemiah is quick here to call evil actions. So spiritual carelessness on our part leads to evil actions with serious consequences. We see that in our text as well. In fact, we're going to see that one of the consequences had been pursued by the fathers. They they had ignored the Sabbath. They had ignored the seventh year land of rest. And by doing so, they had caused a Babylonian captivity. And Nehemiah points this out to him. He says, wait a second, you're redoing the exact same thing. You've seen this before. Now, before we're too quick to judge them, we recognize that our own hearts are quick to go against the, the promises we've made, even mentally to God, to say, God, I'm sorry, forgive me for this. I won't do this again. And then before we know it, we're right back at it. So this is a message for all of us to pay attention and recognize strategically our own spiritual carelessness. Oh, well, my schedule's changed. I'm not reading my Bible every morning. Oh, I'm just not going to read my Bible this morning. I'm not going to have my prayer time. I'm not going to church. I'm not surrounding myself with the believers who are going to call me out on things I'm doing wrong. That carelessness that creeps into our lives as we either make peace with sin or as we ignore the spiritual disciplines, that carelessness results into evil actions which has serious consequences. So this is a call that harkens us back to say, no, take this seriously. These things are important. These actions, they're evil. And as I talk to you students, I want to say to you over the summer, over this time while you're home, over the course of your life, it's real easy for spiritual carelessness to creep into my life or into your life. And we have to be on guard to say, I'm going to stay rooted in this book no Bible, no breakfast. I'm going to stay rooted in this book daily, reading the word of God, memorizing the word of God, meditating on the word of God, thinking on the word of God, living a life where I'm praying to God, asking for his spirit to help me, that I'm leaning on God when sinful temptations come, pleading to him, Lord, help me to escape this temptation where I've surrounded myself with others, those friends for life, surrounded myself with those friends for life who will come into my life and say, wait a second, what are you doing? You know, This is not right, and they'll call you out on it. My fear is that after you graduate from Cedarville, that after you leave this place where you've had chapels so frequently, and a Bible minor, and friends all around you, that you grow spiritually careless. Spiritual carelessness results in evil actions, which has serious consequences. You can avoid that by staying in the Word, staying rooted to the cross, to His Word. Feeding on it constantly, surrounding yourself with a good local church, with good people, with good friends, praying and asking the Holy Spirit to empower us not to give in. So let's look at what spiritual carelessness in Nehemiah chapter 13 led to. Here's our outline for today we're going to see unwise associations, we're going to see unkept promises, we're going to see an unholy Sabbath, and then we're going to see ungodly marriages. Let's read verses 1 through 9 as we focus first on unwise associations. Here's what it says. On that day, meaning the day that all of this occurred, they read from the book of Moses and in the hearing of the people. Now, these first three verses set up what takes place next with the unwise associations. So pay attention to these first three verses. It says, and they found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter into the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned that curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all of those of foreign descent. So we, the context is set. No Ammonites, no Moabites. Now what happens next? Verse 4. Now before this, Eliashib the priest who was appointed over the chambers. Now, some disagree over whether it was the high priest or a lower priest or who it was, but he was a priest. He was over the chambers, whether that was directly over them or through the chain of command of the house of God and who was related to Tobiah. Tobiah, oh, that name's familiar. Where do we know that name from? We know that name from earlier in the book. It's Tobiah, Tobiah the Ammonite. So wait a second. That's what these verses were setting up. So what happened to this person who was related to Tobiah? He prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the vessels, the ties of grain, the wine, and the oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priest. Now, Nehemiah gives us caveat here. How did this happen? Wait, wait, wait a second. While this was taking place, I, Nehemiah, was not in Jerusalem. For the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time, I asked leave of the king, and I came to Jerusalem. And then I discovered, look what he says, the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. Do we get angry when we see evil, or have we grown accustomed to it? He was so angry, it says, I threw all of the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. And then I gave orders and they cleansed the chamber. And I brought back the vessels of the house of God and the grain offering and also the frankincense. Now let's look through this and let me point out a few things for you. First, it says the reading of the word of God. We note in the book of Nehemiah, the reading of the word of God has an effect on the people. Here, it had an effect on the people. That's an application point for us to say the reading of the word of God, when we sincerely look at what God's word says and we take it as God's word, eternal truth for how we should live our lives and we dig deep into this word, it should have a profound effect on the way we live. It's not just a book that we study for facts. It changes the way I live my life. It convicts my heart. It changes my affections. Read the Word of God for all it's worth. Meditate on it. Memorize it. Dig deep into it. They read the Word of God. It says there that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly. You remember that from Deuteronomy 23 3 through 5, because they hired Balaam to curse them. Now you remember. Ammon and Moab were born from the incestuous relationship of Lot and his two daughters back in Genesis chapter 19, verses 30 through 38. Their their grandmother, Lot's wife, had died in Sodom. Looking back, she turned into the pillar of salt because she was longing in her heart looking back for Sodom. Instead of embracing God and his laws, they rebelled against his people and they called for them to be cursed. The Ammonites worshiped a god named Melech or Milcom, depending on what you're looking at. They sacrifice children in the fire to them. We see this in Leviticus 18:21 and 2 Kings 23, 10 and 13. The Moabites worship Chemosh. They also sacrifice children. We see this in 2 Kings 3:27. These are two different gods, false gods, where they were sacrificing even their own children to these gods to appease the wrath of these gods. This is not the God of the Bible that we see here. This is a competing religion that's going against this. We see that they summoned Balaam, summoned by Balak, the king of Moab. This is why it's such a big deal. And in verse 24, the priest invited Tobiah the Ammonite. We remember him from chapter 2, verse 10, chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, an enemy of Nehemiah, an enemy of all of the things that they have done. They didn't want the wall built. They didn't want the temple restored. They didn't want the worship of God to take place. And now, instead of being part of it, Nehemiah kept them out. They're actually living in the temple. Instead of just having a toehold in it, they actually live in the temple and have pushed out the ties that are supposed to be there. This is a great evil, and we should be angered over this. How is it that somebody would put Tobiah and prepare a large chamber for them? A chamber that's supposed to be used for the very tithes and offerings of the worship of God. Nehemiah chapter six, in verse 6, says, I wasn't around when this happened. There was 12 years that he served as the governor, and then he returned to Artaxerxes. We don't know whether it was in Persepolis, the capital, or in Susa, which is where he was initially. We don't know exactly what was happening but he was probably gone for some extended amount of time. Some of the commentaries say it took 55 days to travel the 1,100-mile journey that it would take. So at 55 days, you could estimate he was there. He spent some significant time there, and then he had to return. So perhaps he was gone for two years. Perhaps he was gone for more than two years because all of this that has taken place, we certainly hope it took more than two years for these people to go from the covenant they had signed in chapter 10 to the actions that we see represented here in chapter 13. And even as I say that, I know in our own hearts, we are so prone to wonder. We are so prone to flee away from the God that we love. Nehemiah wasn't present. Nehemiah comes back. When he comes back, he says, I discovered the evil that he had done for Tobiah. And I was very angry. He threw all of the household furniture out, perhaps foreshadowing Jesus, the coming Savior, when he would cleanse the temple and demonstrate his anger and how worship had been perverted. There's something for us there that we should make sure, however it is we do worship, that the worship is honorable to God, that it is, it is seeking on humbling ourselves before the one true God to serve him and to worship him. Verse nine, he says that he gave the orders and said, cleanse the chambers. Now it's plural here. So we don't know whether there was more than one chamber or whether he just thought they all needed to be cleansed because Tobiah was living in one. And he brought back the vessels of the house of God, put the things back in here that belong in here. Quit doing things that don't belong in here. And the grain offerings and the frankincense. So I have some application for you on this. Some questions we should ask ourselves about this. There was an unwise association that had taken place between Eliashib and Tobiah. They were related. That relationship somehow led to him allowing him to live in a place he should not have lived. So I asked myself and I ask you, do we have unwise associations in our lives that are causing us to compromise on what God's word has said. We need to be a friend to sinners. We need to share the gospel with the lost, but we do not need to have associations that are unwise and calling us, causing us to sin against the God that we love. Do you have such an unwise association? Are you not mature enough in your faith to pull that person towards Christ? You're allowing them to pull you away from Christ. And if so, that association is not wise for you. It's not something you should be pursuing. It's not good for you. Perhaps as we think of ourselves as the New Testament, as the temple of God, do we have in our proverbial house a room occupied by the enemy? Have we made peace with sin in such a way that we allow something in our lives that we allow in our proverbial house for there to be a room that we say, no, 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 God, I'm keeping this room to myself. You can't go in this room. This is my closet. This is my room. This is where I keep my junk. And here what we see is that we should be angry and not making peace with our sin. We should be frustrated not to allow evil to be in our lives so that we clean that room out, we get rid of that room, we throw out the furniture, we make it right, and we put in the things that should be in place there. Have you made peace with your sin? We're called in Romans 8 to put to death the deeds of the flesh by the power of the Spirit. I urge you right now, if you've made peace with your sin, to think about that sin and not let that sin go with peace, but to ask the Spirit to help you make war against that sin, to overcome that sin of the flesh. There's a second point here as we look verses 10 through 14, we see some unkept promises. It says, I also found that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. So why was the room empty for Tobiah? They hadn't been doing their tithe. So that the Levites and the singers who did the work had actually fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials, says Nehemiah. Why is the house of God forsaken? We'll come back to that. And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, the wine, and the oil into the storehouses. And I appointed his treasurers over the storehouses, Shemaliah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Pediah of the Levites, and their assistant Hanan the son of Jacur, the son of Mattaniah. For they were considered reliable. It's a key word there. And their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Now here we see a phrase in verse 14 that's going to pop back up three more times after this, two more times in the exact same sense. Remember me, O oh my God concerning this. And do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. All right, let's walk through this. We see in verse 10, they had not given the portions to the Levites that they should have given. That's why the chamber was empty. Nehemiah confronts them. He didn't overlook the compromise. He didn't say, oh, this is no big deal. He didn't forgive it. He actually confronted it. He came and he said, no, this is not right. Remember, he's the thermostat on the wall. We've got to adjust the temperature back to the word of God. The word of God says, do this. This is what we do. He doesn't take an opinion poll to figure out what's supposed to happen. He goes to the true word of God. Verse 11, he asked the question, why is the house of God forsaken? Nehemiah chapter 10 verse 39 you remember they made the covenant they made the covenant and at the end of all of the covenants that they made which they're breaking you go back and and compare them one to one at the end of that it says we will not neglect the house of God we we read this and we ask ourselves the question why did you fall in this way you you made a covenant you said we won't neglect the house of our God and then in chapter 13, you neglect the house of your God. Why isn't it some other sin that tempts you, some other sin that perhaps you went to? Instead, they do exactly what they made a covenant that they would not do. In verse 13, he appointed people to be over it, reliable people. He appointed a priest, a scribe, a Levite, and a layman. And then in verse 14, he says, remember me, oh my God. Now, when we look at this, remember me, oh my God. Think about it more as Nehemiah is saying, Lord, help me. Lord, help this to take root and not just to remember him in some sense of, of Lord, I want my name to be known, but it's, it's really a plea out for help. Lord, remember what we're trying to do here. Remember these good deeds and allow them to take root. So here he says this in a humble prayer, and this humble prayer is going to come back up again. The word remember comes up repeatedly throughout this entire book. So let's look at our application. What promises have we made to God and not kept? And we do it frequently. We do it flippantly. We tell God things when we feel sorrow for something, and then we allow carelessness to creep in, and we repeat the same actions over and over and over again. What is it in your life, what is it in my life, that we've made a promise to God and not kept? Look at point number three, the unholy Sabbaths. Verse 15, it says, In those days I saw Judah, in Judah, people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain, not just grain, heaps of grain, and loading them on donkeys and also the wine, the grapes, the figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold the food. Verse 16, the the Tyrians, also who lived in the city, they brought in fish and all kinds of good and they sold them on the sabbath to the people of judah in jerusalem itself with an exclamation point they did this in jerusalem then i confronted the nobles he didn't let it go he didn't let it pass he confronted the nobles and said to them what is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the sabbath evil thing we in our culture don't like calling things evil We like to gloss them over. We like to make them feel like they're just little things, that they're no big deal. And here we see a stark awakening when we read these words and say, evil, evil. But that's what the word says to us. So perhaps we don't take our own sin seriously enough. Verse 18, he elaborates, did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city, and there's where we get to the serious consequences. Spiritual carelessness leads to sinful actions, results in serious consequences. Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So what does he do? As soon as it began to grow dark, as soon as the shadows started coming down, at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut the doors should be closed, and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gate, that no load be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and the sellers and all kind of wares, they lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. They couldn't get in the doors, they just stayed outside. So Nehemiah says in verse 21, but I warned them, and I said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do this again, I will lay hands on you. That doesn't mean he's going to pray for them. That means he's going to do bodily harm to them, and force them to leave. This is how seriously he's taking sin against God. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Here we see, remember again, another one of these prayers. Remember this also in my favor, oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. You can hear the yearning of a person who wants their affection set on God, who wants to serve God well. Remember this, O God, and spare me. This is not some prideful plea. This is a humble plea to God. Spare me according to your great steadfast love. So we look at this. Heaps of grain, trading wine presses, loading donkeys, bringing in fish, selling it to the people in Jerusalem itself. Verse 17, he confronts them, this evil thing, profaning the Sabbath, the unholy Sabbath we see there. This is why God brought disaster on them, carelessness towards God's commands. He orders the gates closed. He threatens the violators. He commands them, purify himself, and then he says, Lord, remember me. So how do we apply this to our lives? Have we allowed materialism? They were buying and selling. They wanted goods. They wanted things. Have we allowed materialism? They were buying and selling. Well, there's others coming in and the others are going to buy and sell. And if my business isn't buying and selling while theirs is buying and selling, I'm losing out on a profit. Is it material gain? Or for our culture, perhaps, have we allowed sports? Or something else? Have we allowed anything to become more important to us than setting aside time to worship God? I'm going to go do this. I I I can worship God in my own way, forsaking the assembling together Of yourselves, as Hebrew warns against, have we done this? If we have, perhaps this text should speak to us this morning and cause us to be convicted about that, to recalibrate ourselves, to set our thermostat on the wall in such a way that we will realign ourselves with the Word of God. The second one is just convicting to me, but it's here. We don't keep the Sabbath in the same way they kept the Sabbath in the Old Testament. God made man for the Sabbath, not the Sabbath for man. There's no legalistic requirement. This was a Saturday. We worship God on a Sunday. He was resurrected on a Sunday. You see in the New Testament, the worship on a Sunday. We set aside Sunday morning for the worship of God. There's no command to say that you have to set that that day aside and do absolutely nothing on it. But there is a principle here of God created the whole earth in six days. He rested on the seventh. Throughout the Old Testament, he gave them a Sabbath rest. He gave a Sabbath year of rest for the land. He, He created us in such a way that we should work and we should work to the glory of God and we should be good stewards of that, but then we should also rest. And I'm not very good at this one. I don't stand here telling you I've got this one taken care of. I enjoy work. I enjoy what I do. I often have difficulty maintaining the balance in life by resting properly. I often sit down to rest to come up with eight more things I should go do. It's difficult. And yet here we see a principle that sometimes it's good for us to rest in order to acknowledge that we're not the ones in control that God is. We're serving him. We're doing what he wants. Here we move to our fourth point, ungodly marriages. Let's look at what it says in verse 23. And in those days, I saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Let me clarify right here. It's not marrying with other ethnicities. That's the problem. It's marrying other religions. That's the problem. Look at this as we walk through it. They're from these other places. It's not the ethnicity. It's the religion. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. So they could not speak the language of Judah. So then they could not read the Torah. They could not understand the word of the Lord that had been commanded to them. It says in verse 24, but only the language of each people. So then I confronted them and I cursed them. He recognizes that if they don't have the language to understand God's word, they're not going to live after God's word. These are eternally significant issues. He cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair, pulling out the hair a disgrace after someone had been convicted. And I made them take an oath in the name of God. You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourself. he gives an illustration here. Why is this so important? Did not Solomon king of Israel's sin on account of such women, women of other faiths, other religions. Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him even, even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? Well, it gets worse. And one of the sons of Jehoiada, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the uh, Haranite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Can you imagine Nehemiah up in age at this point in time, realizing this, chasing him from him? Verse 29, another one of these prayers. Remember them this time, oh my God, for they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Serious matters here. Verse 30, thus I cleansed from them everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priest and the Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. Ungodly marriages. They married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Other religions, the children, could not speak the language to hear or read the word of God. Nehemiah confronts them, and he confronts them violently, and it shocks us because we take sin so lightly, and he took sin so seriously. He made them take an oath. He didn't do as Ezra had done and cause a divorce immediately. We don't know why. Perhaps he had seen the fallout from that. Perhaps he just felt led to deal with this in a different way. He made them take an oath that they would not continue doing this, and then he provides an illustration of Solomon. The mother of Rehoboam, Solomon's successor, was an Ammonite princess. Solomon began his reign, as you know, by asking for wisdom from God. In later years, however, those foreign wives, those wives of other religions, caused him to build a high place for Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, on the Mount of Olives. We see that in 1 Kings eleven seven And Melech, the abomination of the Ammonites. So, how do we take this and apply this to our lives? Well, Here's some application questions for you. This is just flat-out disobedience. Is there an area in your life where carelessness has led to disobedience, where you know you are disobedient to God because you have been careless? Carelessness leads to evil actions with serious consequences. Perhaps the Lord today is giving you the opportunity to repent so that you can come back to Him, be in right relationship with Him. Have you allowed the attractiveness or emotional feelings to draw your affections to an ungodly person, especially when you're in college, when you're in high school, when you're a young adult, when you're single and you desire to be married? It's, it's frequent that you could look at somebody and say, well, they're really attractive, they're really pretty, and you have that physical attraction to them, or you enjoy their sense of humor, or you have this infatuation, and all of these floods of emotion cloud your judgment. Have you encountered somebody that you begin to rationalize, you begin to justify, you begin to grow spiritually careless just because of a desire, because of a feeling to draw your affections to an ungodly person, a person that over the course of your lifetime is not going to draw you closer to Christ, but is going to push you away from Christ. Here in the text, heed the words of Nehemiah. Heed the words as he talks about what happened to Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. I challenge you students, do not get engaged. Do not date those who are going to pull your affections away from God. Look at those relationships with wisdom before they ever start, before that attraction gets too deep, before all of those emotions flood in and say, no, this is not something that's going to honor God. This is not something that's going to draw me closer to God. I am not going to pursue this relationship. A heart breaks for those who have, and they deal with the difficulty of that for the remainder of their lives. Have you allowed that attractiveness or emotional feeling to pull you into a relationship that you know is pulling you away from God? Those feelings are strong, but the Word of God is true, and spiritual carelessness leads to evil acts, results in serious consequences. William Booth, the founder of Salvation Army, said this, I want you young men to always bear in mind that it is the nature of a fire to go out. You must keep it stirred and fed and the ashes removed. And I want to remind all of us today, it is the nature of our spiritual fervor, our spiritual fire, our spiritual excitement to go out. We must constantly, as we tend to the fire, We must constantly put new wood on the fire, stoke the fire, remove the ashes that would drown out the fire. We must make sure we are constantly in the Word, meditating on the Word, memorizing the Word, in churches, surrounding ourselves with believers, making sure we are pursuing God and His righteousness. Spiritual carelessness leads to evil actions with serious consequences. You look at it. You can see compromise. You can see selfishness. You can see materialism. You can see disobedience. That honestly probably hits us all. In closing today, I want to point you towards a song. On your devices, uh, you can pull it up. You can listen to it later. You can meditate on it. It's a song, He Will Hold Me Fast. This song, He Will Hold Me Fast, has these words in it. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When my tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I can never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. So we finish up the book of Nehemiah. I just want to encourage you. Don't allow spiritual carelessness in your life to lead to evil actions that will have serious consequences. God is faithful. You can trust him. Thank you for joining with us today. May God bless you.